Welcome to Bina, KALW's program featuring creative voices from the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. In this series, we bring you remarkable artists and thinkers who've come to speak at the JCCSF as part of our Arts and Ideas program. On this edition of Bina, our guest is psychotherapist and author Esther Perel. And now join Barbara Lane at the JCCSF as she introduces Esther Perel. Esther Perel is a family and couples therapist in New York City. Her groundbreaking first book, Mating in Captivity, introduced the inherent conflict in even successful marriages between emotionally safe but boring intimacy and thrilling but potentially risky eroticism, love, and lust. Ever since, Esther Perel has been recognized as one of the world's most original and insightful thinkers about couples', sex- couples sexuality, and the peculiar paradoxes affecting modern marriage in the Western world. Both of Esther's parents were survivors of Nazi concentration camps and the sole survivors of their families. She said she owes her parents, quote, much of my perspective on life as well as my belief in the power of will, the search for meaning, and the resilience of the human spirit. Fluent in nine languages, Esther brings a rich multicultural perspective to her work. The New York Times named her the most important game changer on sexuality and relationships since Dr. Ruth, and her two critically acclaimed TED Talks have reached over 14 million viewers in three years. She's just launched the first Mating in Captivity online workshop, and you can find it at estherperel.com. It's called Rekindling Desire, so check it out. Esther Perel is currently at work on her new book, The State of Affairs, Cheating in the Age of Transparency. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Esther Perel. So, can I have a little bit more light in the, in the room so that we can talk together? And if you're shy about your question, you can always say that you have a friend. You know, you know someone who has this situation. You know, there's lots of ways to uh, pretend that you've never dealt with any of these questions. So um, it's a treat for me to be here. And I'm like listening to this introduction and I'm thinking, my mother, if she was knowing that I'm like going around the globe talking about sex, she would be turning around in her grave. So I thought maybe I could actually give you a quick sense of how I got to this. I'm a cross-cultural psychologist, and for the first 20 years of my work, I spent, the focus was really on looking how relationships, business relationships and romantic relationships and family relationships are changing with the big cultural changes. And the cultural changes I was interested in had to do with Um, forced migration, voluntary migration, mixed marriages, and the digital age. But I had really not focused that much on sex. It was an interesting subject for dinner conversations, but not for a professional career. And then came the Monica Lewinsky and Clinton scandal. And uh, that became my, my inspiration, because I was very interested, why was this country so tolerant of divorce and multiple divorces and so intransigent of transgression. The rest of the world has always opted the other way around. You make compromises on the infidelities, courtesy of women worldwide, 
for sure, um, and you preserve the family. And so I wrote an article that was called In Search of Erotic Intelligence that was kind of written from the perspective of a foreign therapist that was observing American sexuality. And that thing became where I'm standing here tonight, you know, um, traveling the globe and really looking at sexuality like this because it's not like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated with the subject, but I'm interested in it as a window. The most radical, progressive changes in a society worldwide take place around a change of beliefs and behaviors and attitudes about sex. And the most radical, entrenched, rooted, archaic aspects of a society are lodged in its attitudes, behaviors, and beliefs about sexuality. And so it really becomes an incredible window into a culture. And that's the, the scope that I want to take you at, to not think about sexuality as something that you do, but to look at sexuality as a place you go. And where do you go in sex? Where does it take you, inside of you, with another or others? What is this journey? What are the parts of you that you seek to express there? What parts of you does it connect you with? And from that place, we will have a whole other chat tonight. So I began to look at you know, the, this Gordian knot between intimacy and sexuality and to probe the dilemmas of desire in modern couples or in modern love because this is the first time in history that we are engaged in a fascinating human experiment. For all of humanity and human history, we basically had sex in committed relationships or in marriage that was primarily for procreation. And, um, and for that, you could have, you know, if you wanted to have eight to ten children, you needed to have 12 or 13 because a few of them were not going to make it. So it guaranteed activity. Nobody cared if it was good activity, but there was a good result. And then the other thing is that it was primarily a woman's marital duty. The idea that we would have a sexuality that is rooted in desire for the long haul and that we would develop this concept called a passionate marriage forever has been a total oxymoron. And yet, we all want it. So what is this, you know, what is this thing called desire, and how does it intersect with modern love? So I, be, I, I gathered it around a few questions, right? Why does good sex fade even in couples who continue to love each other as much as ever? Because if I had written a book about people who can't stand each other and don't want to touch each other, that is totally boring. Nobody's interested in that. It's kind of obvious. And even that, some very volatile, nasty people have good sex. You know, that's, <laughs> that too. <laughs> Things are not so linear, yeah? But <laughs> why does it fit even... Because, of course, the romantic ideal has told you when you love, you desire, those two should flow together in parallel, etc. Then my second question became... Why does good intimacy not guarantee good sex? Contrary to anything that you're being told in women's magazines on page 108, and I'm on that page, <laughs> you know, every month, you know. What is this inverse correlation, this puzzling dialectic between intimacy and sexuality? And then my next question became, why does sex make babies and babies spell erotic disaster in couples? <laughs> you know, it's often the fatal erotic blow. 
you know. And then after that, I began to think, why is the forbidden so erotic? What is it about the fact that we have this incredible generation that started in the 60s that has premarital sex as a given in the West, contraception in their hand, the permission to do what they want, and they just don't feel like it, or at least not at home. You know, not where it's supposed to happen. Something about the fact that you should makes you want it elsewhere. Yeah, so then became this kind of, what is this rebellious spirit of the erotic that I began to be interested in? And then the next question was, can we want what we already have? Which is a question that Kant and Spinoza and major other philosophers have asked all along. This is not a new question, but it is one of the most beautiful questions about desire. And then the next one was, when you love, how does it feel? And when you desire, how is it different? So that's what I would like for us to discuss tonight. Are you okay? (laughs) I don't see you, so you have to talk. You have to make sound. (laughs) Um, But from that place, I began to think a number of very interesting things are happening, right? You know, um, I am... European, and we have this tradition that you cannot launch into a subject without first locating it into its historical context. And it's a different take because often in America, when you say that's historical, that means it's irrelevant. But it's not irrelevant. It's very important that you follow me. I will give it to you in three minutes. It's 150 years of history in three minutes. But it's very important. Yeah? It goes like this We live in villages. We live in communities. We live in a collective culture that basically gives us our sense of belonging and our sense of continuity and our sense of identity. The vast majority of the world still lives like that. And in this collective, we don't really need to think about who we are in this way because the collective tells us what we are about and what we should be doing and so forth. And around the end of the 19th century, we begin to move to the cities. And as we move to the cities, we become more individualized. And we participate in the rise of one of these most incredible revolutions called the ascension of individualism, which goes right together with industrialization and goes together with romanticism. And I become a lot more free. I become more free to decide, to have choices, and to choose my partner, something that most people had never chosen. But as I become more free, I also become more alone. And as I become more alone, my choice of my partner, my beloved, is becoming more and more significant. So that if marriage forever was about companionship and economic support and social status and succession and family life, I still want all of this. But now I also want my partner to be my best friend and my trusted confidant and my passionate lover to boot. And you know what? We live twice as long. (laughs) So now... I want one person to give us what once an entire village used to provide. And that becomes the romantic ideal in which you are the one, the chosen one, the special one, the indispensable one, the irreplaceable one. And then the grand ambition of love is such that this word called intimacy which when you think about Goldie and Tevye in Fiddle on the Roof, intimacy was, you know, I washed your children, I fed them, I milked the cows, I, you know, and it's kind of domesticity at best and oppression in general. But, uh, <laughs> you know, 
No, no, no. Intimacy today is into me see. And into me see goes like this. I am going to talk to you, my beloved. And when I talk to you, please, you need to look at me. No clicking away. Uh, because I need mirror neurons and I need that connection. And I need to know that I matter. And as I talk to you, I need you to reflect back to me and to validate me so that I can know that I am a significant other. Yeah. And this whole intimacy becomes a completely new definition of intimacy. By the way, in many parts of the world, they will know what I'm talking about. But this is very, very important. When you begin to think about some of the major changes that have affected marriage, committed relationship, that whole institution, right? So what we do, the first thing we do is we bring love to marriage, something that we never did. Then we bring sex to love. We bring sex to love because we have the gay movement, the women's movement, and the democratization of contraception. I could spend a day just talking about these three influences, but super, super important. And sexuality shifts from duty and obligation to desire, pleasure, and connection. And sexuality that forever was part of the human condition, just something that is part of who we are, becomes a part of our identity, not just of our condition, but of my identity, of my subjective definition of who I am. It becomes a life project. It has to do with lifestyle. This kind of concept of sexuality has never been part of the, the way that it was conceived. And not only do we bring love to marriage, sex to love, but we also tie together marital satisfaction with sexual happiness. Now, that's a real new one. You talk to the grandmothers, you will know it wasn't always the case. You know? And then not only do we tie those things together, but we also did something else that is really a fantastic thing. For most of history, happiness belonged to the heavens. And it was for the afterlife. If you suffered well on earth, you had a chance for the next time. But now we brought happiness down to earth, and for a while it was an option, and now it's become a mandate. So we must be happy. When I've chosen you, you and I are going to be happy together. <laughs> you know, and that is a tall order of expectations, and so many relationships are crumbling under the weight of all these expectations. So that's a first set of things that we did. And then we did a few other things. You know, marriage used to be generally the first time you had sex. Today, marriage is when you have stopped having sex with others. <laughs> it's a big change. It's a big change. Marriage used to be one person for life. And when I say marriage, I'm talking about long-term relationships. I'm not talking just about the legal. But that used to be the only version we had. And it was a heterosexual marriage. You know, there's a lot of things that have finally changing. But um, you pretty much married one person for life. And if you were miserable, you could be lucky because you died younger. <laughs> that was that. You know, you did the best you could with what you had. You know, and monogamy. Monogamy, for most of history, had absolutely nothing to do with love. Monogamy was a mainstay of patriarchy so that the man could know to whom do the cows belong and whose children shall I feed. You know, this was actually an imposition on women. Monogamy has never been a problem for men. It was a double standard forever. It is still a double standard in most parts of the world. 
But that's a very important thing to understand, that this concept of monogamy as being recuperated through the romantic ideal as an expression of deep abiding commitment and love and desire for one person, that is rather recent story. And then, you know, because marriage was more mercenary and economic, actually the space for love for, many, for a long time was the adulterous space. Adultery was the space where people went to seek pure love. And so infidelity for much of the time, because marriage was an economic arrangement, infidelity was an economic threat. But now that marriage is, an economic, is a romantic arrangement, infidelity is an emotional threat. So all of these things, people, have taken place in a very short amount of time. And now becomes the question, what, what is this thing called desire? How did we come to... Desire becomes the organizing concept, so I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated with it because it goes hand in hand with individualism, with the rise of the self. To desire is to own the wanting. From a phenomenological point of view, you've become so quiet suddenly. <laughs> Are you with me? Yeah, okay, you're listening. Good. <laughs> so, um, there is at the heart of sustaining desire an incredible paradox that we are trying to reconcile. And it goes like this. We all have two sets of fundamental human needs. We all, men and women, because often these things are genderized and it's not necessarily so accurate. We have a need for security. You have a, we have a need for safety. We have a need for stability. We have a need for predictability. We have a need for reliability, for dependability, for the anchoring, grounding experiences of our life called home. But we also have a deep quest for novelty, for mystery, for the unknown, for surprise, for the exploration, for the discovery, for the curiosity, for the danger, for the risk. And what happens is that never before have we tried to integrate these two fundamental sets of human need in one relationship. Never have we asked the same person to at the same time bring us familiarity and also novelty. And at the same time comfort but also edge. And at the same time predictability but also surprise. And at the same time safety but also transcendence and awe. <laughs> you know... And generally, we wanted to switch between six and eight. <laughs> Same time. <laughs> you know, from this to this. You know. This reconciling of these two fundamental sets of human needs is, a, is an interesting challenge because they actually are two needs that spring from different sources and pull us in different directions. All of us, straddle these two needs from the minute that we are born, by the way. And some of us will come out of our history wanting more space and wanting more air and wanting more freedom. And some of us will come out of our childhoods wanting more protection, wanting more connection, wanting more secure attachment. And these things change, by the way, in the course of our lives. But we tend to arrive at the end of childhood with a greater need for one and, uh, than the other, which in the context of relationship creates something like this. In every relationship, you will find that there is one person that is more in touch with the fear of losing the other 
and one person who is more in touch with the fear of losing themselves. You will find that there is one person who is more aware of the fear of abandonment and one person who is more in touch or more aware with the fear of suffocation and obliteration. And by the way, these two people generally meet <laughs> and mate because we tend to mate with someone whose proclivities match our vulnerabilities. Right? So this existential dilemma to me, is really a paradox that you manage and not a problem that you solve. And certainly you don't solve it with sexual toys and techniques and things like that. It's a little bit more complicated. You're listening to psychotherapist and author Esther Perel on Bina, a series featuring creative voices from the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. Bina is also available as a podcast, and you can find it at kalw.org. So, now that I've given you the, the polarity or the dialectic between security and adventure, I want to give you another one, which is, for me, the polarity or the dialectic between love and desire. Because we, that is the question of why does good intimacy so often you know, not guarantee good sex. It's because we have this idea that if I love you, I desire you. But in fact, sometimes the very ingredients that nurture love are the ones that trample desire. Love, the verb, is to have. And when I have, I want to minimize the threat. I want to neutralize the distance. I want to close the gap. I want to know my partner. But desire doesn't do well with foregone conclusion. It makes it rather uninteresting. Desire actually thrives on otherness, on difference, on a bridge to cross and someone else to visit on the other side. Fire needs air, is really the, 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 the idea. And so sometimes mutuality, reciprocity, the sense of responsibility that we feel for another person, the sense of worry that we have for another person, those feelings for some of us can make it more difficult to experience the freedom and the unselfconsciousness that is needed in order to freely want in order to be able to experience the selfishness of desire. And the way that I began to think about that is because I started to watch little kids. So I'm still a practicing therapist. I'm a couples therapist par excellence, but I'm also very much a family therapist. And I would look at these little kiddos, you know. How many of you have kids or no kids or are surrounded by kids? Great, lovely. So we'll talk about parenthood and sex and kids in a minute. You know, the little kids, they sit on your lap, right? And at some point, if all goes well, if the Schmurf goes into the world to discover and to explore. And they go off to see, to play. This motion of playing, of leaving the base, the home, to go on the journey, this is the trajectory of desire. In, but, but in children, we don't call it like that. But every little kid at some point is going to turn around and look at you. And then they're going to watch for a cue. And if the cue says, kiddo, the world's a great place, go have fun, feel free, I'm here whenever you come back, what do the children do? They turn around and they go further. And they actually experience 
security and adventure at the same time, without even thinking about it. They experience togetherness and autonomy at the same time. They experience commitment and freedom at the same time. Whatever language you will use, it's that integration, that glorious integration that so many of us strive for for our entire life afterwards. But if this little kid turns around and there's an adult here and they say, what's so great out there? Don't we have everything we need together? I'm so lonely. I'm depressed. My partner hasn't paid any attention to me. I'm upset, I'm anxious, whatever. All these messages that tell the little child, come back. They don't have to say it. But there are lots of children and some of you in this room that know that you will come back because some of us, in order not to lose the other, would rather lose parts of ourselves. And we will forego that sense of freedom, of playfulness, of curiosity, of autonomy, of freedom, all those essential ingredients of desire and of the erotic in order to preserve the connection and the security. But then there are other kids who don't run back so quickly because they have zest and they want to go, but they live like this. And they are always looking over their shoulder. Are you going to be okay? Will you not collapse on me? Will you not get upset? Will you not punish me? And those are the people who, in the beginning of a relationship, often find it quite easy to reconcile sexuality and intimacy or love and desire. But as they become closer, they too begin to experience love with the same ingredients of love, care, responsibility, worry, but with just a little extra. The burdens of it. Just too much that when I'm connected with you, I don't know how to retreat also in me. I don't know how to hold on to my pleasure, to my excitement, to my orgasm, to my sensations, while I'm also attending to you. And the third children, by the way, they don't come back because there's often not much to come back to, and they often have lives with utmost passion and zero stability. So it's that dialectic that I begin to explore when I think about love and I think about desire. When I think about, you know, if I ask people, by the way, I could ask you, actually. When I say to you, I am most drawn to my partner when, what would you say? Not just sexually attracted, just drawn to. I'm most drawn to my partner when, give me a few, just yell. When they show vulnerability, and that's not what they usually do. Because if they always do it, you're not drawn to it. (laughs) It's because they're showing you a side of them that is not common, and so you have that moment where you feel that you're being brought into the antechamber of their psyche or their heart, and that becomes the drawing. No? Who said it? Yes? Okay, good. I'm most drawn to my partner when... They're in their own element. When they're fully alive. When they are confident. When they are proud, or you're proud of them. Yes, last second. Yes. When they are playful, or we are playful. Both. When they, do, they know how to work a room. See that? Yeah, to work the room. Yes, yes, I understood, to work the room. What I'm doing here. (laughs) 
trying. <laughs> How am I doing? <laughs> okay. <sighs> I am most drawn to my partner is the question that I've actually taken with me across the globe. I was in India last month and I just I couldn't wait to ask the question again. The only time that question, by the way, is gender specific is when women say, I'm most drawn to my partner where he plays with the kids. For the rest, every other one is gender neutral because if she plays with the kids, it just ain't sexy. <laughs> it's just like the, too much history behind that one. But all the others go into three categories, actually. You know, um, the indie element, proud, um, working the room, confident, they all have that same principle. When I'm looking at my partner, not like this, where we are like glued to each other, because by the way, if you put your finger here, you can't see it. In order to see another, you need to have a comfortable distance, and it's comfortable and distant. Not too close, but also not too far that you don't see them anymore. So this partner that I'm looking at, who is momentarily, again, somewhat elusive, somewhat mysterious, and I'm looking at this person for his or her own um, being. And this person, confident, proud, and so forth, it's basically what I've come to call radiant. But there is no bigger turn-on, by the way, worldwide than confidence. It manifests differently in different cultures, but it all comes down to confidence. It has nothing to do with your size of nothing, no body parts. <laughs> Relax. <laughs> take, if there's one thing you take with you, confidence. And confidence transcends the limitations of your body and of your age. It's a product of your imagination, of how you imagine yourself and how you put yourself in the world. Confident. When my partner is in, an, in his or her element, on stage, on the horse, at the gym, in the sweat, you know, um, uh, in working the room, and that person that I'm looking at is now at a distance between me and him or her, and that is the erotic elan. Why is this radiance such a turn-on? Why is confidence such a turn-on? Because when you are confident, you basically communicate to the other, I don't need you. And if you communicate to the other, I don't need you, then the other can trust you when you say, I want you. If you don't want, which is desire, but you need, which is love, then I could respond to your need. I could be very caring and very loving. But care and love are, in that version of emotional responsibility is often a powerful anti-aphrodisiac. Because if I feel that you need me, I will often, and especially on the front of women, but I would say on the front of anyone who understands parental responses, I, you will emerge in a parental response. And that parental response will be deeply loving and deeply affectionate. But it will not be sexual because there is one taboo that crosses every culture and that is the incest taboo. And if you become too familial and too parental with your partner, you will have plenty of love and affection and touch, but it will be a touch that stops right here where family touch stops. Because if you have a head screwed up right on your shoulders, you don't want sex in the family. So people know when they are needed and people know when they are wanted. 
And the second one, by the way, I'm most drawn to my partner when this thing about the vulnerability is not about the vulnerability. It's about the surprise. It's about the otherness. It's about the fact that it's not the person I typically get to see. And that calls my attention. When you are different, I do this. I lean in, as they say these days. I am curious. I am alert. You know, I am not sitting like this on my couch where nothing is going to happen because I don't want any... This is, this is comfort. You know, comfort is phenomenal, but nothing's going to happen there, right? <laughs> you know, and the third one, which you didn't say, but you know, is that I am most drawn to my partner when he or she is away. And you're going to laugh because you're going to think that it means bon débarras, you know, like good riddance. But that's not the idea. The idea is that when the other person isn't there, you actually get to reconnect with your imagination about the other person. Because reality is often more disappointing than your own imagination. <laughs> After all, <laughs> you know. When the other is gone, you get to reconnect with the dimension of longing and yearning that is part of desire. You know, we want what we don't have is a part of the relationship. And when you're not there, and I'm not having to, you're not right in the immediacy of me, I get to experience some of the longing of you. It's the same if people say, we, I get, I'm drawn to my partner when we reconnect, when we come back. It's part of that same dynamic, right? So all of these led me to think that love needs closeness, but desire needs distance, a certain kind of psychological distance. And that's why integrating these two is sometimes a little difficult. So you have security and adventure, you have love and desire, and then the third one that became important for me was the difference between sexuality and eroticism. Animals have sex, but it's the primary, it's the pivot, it's the biology. But we have an erotic mind. And this erotic mind allows us to do something that is utterly magnificent. I can make love to you for hours, have a blissful time, multiple orgasms, and never touch you, just because I can imagine it. And that expansiveness of the erotic mind, that idea that the central agent of the erotic is our imagination, the idea that eroticism is the poetry of sex the way that poetry is the eroticism of language, that is what allows us to actually remain interested in this endeavor called sexuality for a long time. Sometimes with the same person, sometimes with many people, but at least we remain interested first and foremost with ourselves because if we are not interested in us, it doesn't really matter what other people do. And the way I began to think about this thing, about eroticism, actually came really through the back door. In my relationship, I work on pleasure, and my husband works on pain. It's, uh, he does trauma, big trauma, large-scale disasters, torture, tsunamis, shootings, terrorist attacks, that kind of thing. But I was asking him one day when I was writing, I said, when do you know when you work with the torture victims that they, that they come back? Like, when do you know they come back to living? You know, and then we began to talk. You begin to know that life comes back when a person is once again, go back to the image of the child, able to be creative, able to play, able to be curious, able to be this, in the exploratory mode, which means I'm looking outside of myself. 
And to do that, you have to have a minimum of sense that the world is safe enough to be able to leave, to have that eloping, that space that you enter, that freedom. If you're vigilant, if you're anxious, if you're worried, you can't do that. And from that thing, I began to think about, I come from Antwerp, Belgium, it's Flemish Belgium, and I come from a community that is all Holocaust survivors. It's not just my parents, it's the entire bunch, the entire clan. And we're about 20,000 Jews in Antwerp. Um, but in my community, there were two groups of people. There were those who did not die, and there were those who came back to life. But you can apply this to all trauma people. It just happens to be my training ground. Because I remember going to the people who didn't die. It was morbid. You know, the curtains were down. The couches were covered in plastic. You didn't live there. You just survived there. That's a different level of life. And certainly you didn't experience pleasure. Because pleasure demands a level of unselfconsciousness. If you're in survival mode, you're not in pleasure mode. They're incompatible. They're physiologically, brain-wise, incompatible and certainly existentially. And then the other group, so these people, by the way, that didn't die, they often, they, they, it was that. They lived, they lived tethered to the ground. They lived worried. They lived not trusting. The world was a dangerous place. And pleasure was synonymous with guilt. Because if you were experiencing pleasure, it meant that you were not being on guard. Hence, you had just missed the moment and you could consider yourself lucky if nothing bad had happened to you. But the people who came back to life are really the people who helped me understand eroticism. But eroticism, like in Jewish mysticism, which actually has very little to do with sexuality and everything to do with aliveness, vibrancy, vitality, life force, energy. These people understood the erotic as an antidote to death. To the point where when my dad took me to the camps and began to tell me about this woman that he had fallen in love with, but the next day when she was shaven, he couldn't recognize her, so he had to find someone to... And I understood the erotic as an antidote to death. It just was a whole different thing. How in the face of boredom, in the face of adversity, in the face of limitations, to continue to rise above it and to imagine a different reality. And that's where the imagination really became central. When the people in my office complain about the listlessness of their sex lives, they sometimes want more sex, but they always want better sex. What they want is to reconnect with that quality of aliveness, of vibrancy, of vitality, of playfulness. People can have sex. People have done sex forever and felt nothing. That is not the point. And that's very difficult sometimes to communicate in this action-oriented society that wants to see sex as a thing with an outcome that will produce pills for this outcome, <laughs> you know. Um, but it's, it's just a whole, you know, perfection industry, performance perfection industry, actually. The, 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 act, the act is more important than the experience. And that is very problematic if people want to be able to have long-standing experiences with one or multiple partners. So that's the third one, is the difference between sex and eroticism. This is Bina, KALW series featuring artists and thinkers who've spoken at the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. 
Today's guest is psychotherapist and author Esther Perel. Bina is also available as a podcast, and you can find it at kalw.org. And then the last one for me is really this. You know, our emotional history is transcribed in the physicality of sex. That whole story that I described with the little children and all of that, that actually becomes imprinted in your body. If you ask yourself, how did you learn to love and with whom? And did you feel protected by those people? Or did you have to flee for protection? And was pleasure tolerated, celebrated, or some suspicious thing that meant that you had been unproductive? And were you allowed to laugh out loud and to cry out loud? And was your body acknowledged? Was it rocked? Was it held? Was it sued? Or was this body violated, intruded upon, hurt, damaged? All these experiences become part of the dowry that we bring to our sexual encounters. So that typically people say, tell me how you were loved and I'll tell you how you love. But I have often thought that it's actually much bigger. Tell me how you were loved, and I'll tell you how you make love. If I go and I ask people to work with me, and actually for the, for the Rekindling Desire course, I began to think, how do I take all these ideas and translate them into exercises, you know, practical things that people can, can do and answer and explore about themselves. So I thought, you know, I speak many languages, as you heard, and typically when I travel to a foreign country, the first thing I do is I take a grammar book and I learn the, the ten basic verbs. To be, to go, to stay, <laughs> to have, you know, because once you have that grid, you can kind of enter into a language. So I began to do it the same way sexually. I thought sexuality is a language. What would be the key verbs that one would need to learn as a beginning? And it went like this, to ask and ask yourself, how comfortable am I asking? Is this an easy thing for me to ask for what I like, to ask for what I want, or to ask another person what they would want from me? Now you can put this in the domain of the erotic, and you can put it in the domain of the affective and the emotional. But I'm going to keep it around the sexual. To give. How easy is it for you to give? To actually be really curious into another, about another person and to extend yourself to them. To take. How comfortable are you in the greed of taking, in the voraciousness of taking, in the feeling that you are deserving and entitled to actually take? to have something that is just for you, for no other reason than it's you. And how comfortable are you to receive, which is one of the harder ones, to let somebody else give to you because they value you, they love you, they desire you, they think you're great, they want to please you, they want to make you feel good. And how comfortable are you in the fantasy department, in the imagination, right? But, and how comfortable are you to share? And the last one that's probably the, one of the most important one is how comfortable are you saying no to refuse? Because if you have never felt the freedom to say no, you have never had the freedom to say yes. Now we're going to go to this thing about, um, about communication. I think that there's a very, very challenging thing going on. And this goes also on with the, the thing about non-monogamy and the thing about infidelity. 
Most of us learn to sexuality in silence. We learn about sex in a very conspiratorial way. We talk about it very little. And in the U.S., there's a lot of talk about sex in the, in the large, uh, you know, in the public space, but it's a conversation that is often a real schizo situation. It's on the one hand complete excess, and on the other hand complete repressive tactics. This is the one country in the West, by the way, that does not have a public health policy on adolescent sexuality. In order to pass the Obamacare, it had to put another few millions into abstinence campaigns. And when it does have sex education, it's all about the dangers and the disease and the problems. There is very little that ever mentions relationship, connection, and let alone pleasure. And when it talks about women's genitalia, it uses language that is kind of archaic, so God forbid she would have any pleasure. The situation is very, very bad, actually. And suddenly you have to talk with this person. All you've learned is that sex is dirty, but save it for the one you love. <laughs> it's kind of difficult. So, so people talk about sex with a lot of people except the one they're having sex with. When it's in the beginning, you don't want to talk because you don't want to rock the boat. Afterwards, you don't want to talk because you didn't talk in the beginning, so how are you going to talk about it now? It's just never the right time. And so one of the places where all the conversations take place around boundaries, around monogamy, around fantasy, around fetish, around preferences, is when the hits the fan. Crisis. Crisis will propel people into substance. Yeah? So um, I have decided, you know, part of the, the new book is to talk with people. How do you actually have these conversations outside of crisis? Now, you know what happens. When things go well, this is true for any company, this is true for any corporation, you don't have much of an incentive to change when things are calm, but you have more latitude to change when things are calm. When you're in crisis, you have more of an incentive to change, but you have less openness because you are in a contracted, fearful state. Do you understand this? This is true as well in a, in a relationship. So how do you bring up the subject of monogamy? You know, for most of history, monogamy was one person for life. Today, monogamy is one person at a time. <laughs> so people go around and they say, I am monogamous in all my relationships. <laughs> and this makes perfect sense suddenly, <laughs> you know. So the first thing I would say is... And, a colleague of mine, Tammy Nelson, she talks about the new monogamy is really a continuum. Monogamy is a continuum. If you think about it, people, many of you probably had some form of nomadism before you committed yourself or decided to spend some time longer with somebody. And monogamy at this point exists only in reality. It doesn't exist in your history and it doesn't exist in your fantasy. And reality is a rather small part of a person's mind. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, when I think of the continuum of monogamy, it's what? It's the fact that you have known others. It's the fact that you have loved others. It's the fact that others have explored you. 
It's the fact that you think of others. It's the fact that you remember them. It's the fact that you're chatting with them. It's the fact that you're staying on your dating apps while you're already seeing somebody. It's the fact that you're flirting with someone. It's the fact that you're thinking of somebody else while they are with you. Or it's the fact that you're thinking about who you were when you were younger with each other. You were other too. And now, the problem of the conversation of monogamy is that this romantic thing that we are in that says, I have found the one. This the one now means that this person is going to capture my entire imagination, eros and all, and therefore, every time I'm thinking or I have desires or I have wishes for anything else, this person can very quickly think, I'm not enough. This is the big conversation around monogamy. By the way, porn question has the same features in straight couples, not in gay couples. And, and by the way, the infidelity is the same theory at this point. It's a whole symptom model. If you have everything you want at home, there is no reason to go looking elsewhere. Therefore, if you're going looking elsewhere, there must be something missing. And either something is missing in your relationship or something is missing in you. But, you know, when you take this kind of pathological model, I'm thinking millions of people can't all be pathological. <laughs> There's just too many of them to come up for the diagnosis, you know. So the conversation really has to be, you know, um, what do you do with your sexual thoughts? What kind of sexual thoughts do you have? What happens to you as a sexual being when you go out in the world? Do you ever have other desires than what we have? And to not take this as a shortcoming of you. That's the first one. And vice versa on the other side. Then people can have broader conversations about, you know, I think that every couple lives in the shadow of the third. The third is the one you didn't choose. But that continues to roam around your relationship all the time. And some couples negotiate the third by basically excluding that presence and basically saying it's just you and me and nothing from the outside will enter here. There is no third anymore. And they often will not share any of their erotic interiority with their partner. And when it happens, it is often in a situation of crisis because your sexuality now belongs to me. And some people will invite the third into their fantasy life together, as in your role-play situations, for example. The third is a presence. The third is the desires that exist outside the fence, and they are absolutely normal. And some people want to invite the third in, literally, and they call them up or text <laughs> and say, show up. So... Um, I wrote a chapter in the new book that is called Even Paid Sex Isn't Just Sex, The Emotional Economics of Commercial Infidelity. And uh, what, was really, what began to be interesting to me is this. How am I going to say this in short? It goes like that. This is going to be a gendered conversa uh, conversation for a minute. Okay? And, uh, but it's gendered. It's not uh, heterosexual per se. And when I say men, it's masculine, and women is feminine, and they can exist in the body of a man or of a woman. I'm not just looking at them, you know, sex and gender as one thing. I believe that in order to let go, sex is an experience of loss of control, an experience of surrender to another, to your mounting sensation, 
to your pleasure, to your sense of self-worth, whatever it is. In order to experience that pleasure, a certain group of people, more often called men, need to know that they are free of the predatory fear. The predatory fear, you hear it when straight men tell you, nothing turns me on more than to see her turned on. Which, by the way, is a sentence you rarely hear of straight women. He can be as turned on as he wants, it makes nothing. <laughs> this is not what, because for her, nothing turns her on more than to be the turn on. It's very different. And this is a very important thing that I'm kind of finding my way through. If I say, nothing turns me on more than to see you turned on, it means that if I see pleasure in you, then I know I am not hurting you. If I am not hurting you, I am not a predator who is violent, and therefore I can let go. Porn offers you the total freedom from the predatory fear. Because the woman in porn, generally the woman in porn, but the man in porn too, the people in porn, are people who tell you, sex, more, 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 me too. They always enjoy it. They never make you feel inadequate. They never reject you. They never make you feel impotent. None of it. And so their pleasure frees you, the viewer, in the possibility of letting go without thinking that you are a dirty little boy that is greedy, that wants too much, that wants to hurt, that all of that stuff. The predatory fear, I think, is an essential component that is an erotic block that people want to free themselves of. By the way, if it's a woman in porn, she never has a headache. You know, <laughs> she never says not tonight. She's always ready, and so she welcomes that part of you. But on the woman's side, I think that one of the most important misunderstandings is that when, when I hear women know, say, Nothing turns me on more than to be the turn-on. What I'm hearing is that while in the social role, women are often put in a role of caretaking. And please, it's, when I think of it as people and find the ones that are relevant for you, otherwise this becomes way too narrow. If your social role is about taking care of others, then your sexual role demands a high degree of narcissism. The big secret of female sexuality is that it is mightily narcissistic. Because in order for me to be able to think about me, I have to make sure that I don't have to worry about you, says the person who has been socialized in taking care of others. This can be a man or a woman. If your role is to take care of others, in order to be able to experience freedom in sex, you need to be able to be entirely self-absorbed and immersed in yourself. That's part of the attraction of the bad boy, by the way. The bad boy takes perfectly good care of himself. You don't need to worry about him. Therefore, you can focus on yourself. Do you understand what I'm saying? The burden of caretaking and the predatory fear are two of the most important erotic blocks. And anything that will stimulate parental responses will become an erotic block. Now, this is an incredible freedom that we have today to be able to even consider these kinds of questions. The vast majority of the world has no access to any of this, any of this, partly because 
for us in the West at this point, the personal project has become the central project of our life. It's not the big political ideas, it's not the big ideologies, it's our personal life that has become the realm that replaces what once religion was, what once politics, it's everything. So you are in your personal project dealing with religious questions of death and political questions of rights and personal questions of love. And then the last thing was about what is about relationships. Oh, people, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is when I go home, my husband said, so what did you tell them tonight? <laughs> you know, um, I don't think that there is one answer about what are the important things um, for, for relationships. Um, you know, the poly community has a new, has a, no, it's not a new word, has a word that has often been used before, but that was never named like that. It's called compersion. It's the concept of, will, of happiness for the other person's happiness, even if it has nothing to do with you. And that, to me, is an essential thing. The ability to rejoice for another for the things that are happening to them that are separate from you. This is number one. And the second one, I would say, is that we often talk about, about love and about respect and things like that. I think admiration is actually a big one because admiration really implies otherness. Admiration implies a form of idealization. Admiration implies the ability. What is the biggest challenge of relationships? It's the fact that we have to live next to somebody who breeds, sees, feels and thinks about the same reality, something so completely different. <laughs> and how do we accept that without thinking that that makes us be the crazy one? That to me is an amazing challenge. I just saw this, how can you see that? That's not possible, you know? And that notion that there is somebody different, others, they're next to you, who takes in the world in a completely different way. And you are able to not feel alone because they don't see it the way you do, to me is one of the great challenges of relationships. And one of the most incredible things, when you actually are able to begin to do that, and you no longer need them to support you because you support yourself, but you appreciate that they see something else because it actually expands your own horizon, then you're having a great trip. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bina is a co-production of the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco and KALW. For more information about programs at the JCCSF, you can visit jccsf.org. Today's guest was psychotherapist and author Esther Perel. I'm David Kwan, editor and producer of the program. Our theme music is from the album Masada Rock by the Roshanim Trio. And the music you're hearing right now is by John Zorn. Bina is available as a podcast and you can find it at kalw.org. Thanks for listening.